We are continuing our series through the book of Proverbs, and so if you would please open your Bibles, and this evening's message comes to us from Proverbs chapter 18, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 21, so Proverbs chapter 18, and we'll begin reading in verse 12. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Proverbs chapter 18, beginning in verse 12. Hear now the word of God. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer, and then we'll hear the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we look into your heart, a heart filled with wisdom, that you would impart it unto us by the revelation of your Son, wisdom incarnate, and that you would apply it to our lives by the Spirit of wisdom, by the Holy Spirit that you would conform us and make us more like your Son, that you would purge our foolish ways from our hearts, that you would give us a strong and unflappable reliance upon your grace, and, O Lord, that you would use us as your wise servants to bring glory to your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. It was Thomas E. Dewey in the 1950 presidential election that all of the news media, at least at that particular time, thought was going to beat the, uh, you know, uh, President Harry Truman. And of course, you've probably seen those pictures where Harry S. Truman is standing up, smiling, with the newspaper headlines of several different major cities saying, uh, Dewey wins. Well, we know, of course, uh, Truman is the one who had the final say, and it kind of embodies this idea that uh, sometimes people begin to brag, they begin to celebrate before they've actually won. I can remember watching uh, Super Bowl coverage before the game, and it was in the weeks before the game, where a coach was disconcerted by the fact that two of his players were bragging uh, rather uh, forcefully about how well they were going to play in the game. And the coach said at a press conference, I'm really concerned that these players are going to get beat. In other words, that the receivers for the other team would be able to outperform them and they would have to eat their own words. We all know of people and we've seen situations and circumstances where people are filled with confidence and then they have to eat crow when they fail. 
Hopefully, we haven't been the ones who have had to do that too often. Well, Solomon, I think, was well aware of this human propensity. And what he starts off here in this particular section is he says here in verse 12, he says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. He uses verse 12 in this particular uh, set of ideas as a hinge. In the first part of chapter 18, he's largely talking about the actions of the fool. He uses this as a hinge to transition to talk about the conduct of those who are humble. And so this is where he transitions, transitions us from one topic to the other. And he says there again, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before dishonor. Think of the first half of the verse as connected to the earlier part of the chapter and the foolish conduct of sinners and how it brings destruction upon them. And then conversely, the latter half of this chapter talking about the conduct of the wise, those are, who are humble. Think, for example, of Pharaoh's arrogance, how he relentlessly pursued Israel despite experiencing the wrath of God's ten plagues against Egypt, even up to the point of costing him the life of his son. And his haughty heart led to his destruction. Conversely, think of Christ's humility, his willingness to be obedient to the point of death, even on a cross that has now segued to his exaltation to the right hand of the Father and the awaiting of the exaltation and his revelation of his glory at the consummation of all things. Destruction, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Well, in contrast to the haughty fool, Solomon showcases the difference or the humility of the wise. And he talks about the wise person as one who is teachable. Unlike the arrogant, he leans, who leans on his own understanding, the wise person seeks the wisdom of God. He acknowledges that he does not know, that he himself is ignorant, that he himself needs to be taught, so that God himself will teach him. The wise person, therefore, is teachable. The wise person acts humbly and wisely when he's settling disputes. He doesn't resort to force as the foolish person would, as the sinner would, but instead he resorts to God's revelation to give him a clear path through. The wise person speaks godly words because he knows that those words will not only affect others around him, but they will ultimately also affect himself. One of the things that I regularly tell my students is that when you preach, when you step into the pulpit, do you listen to your own words? Do you listen and preach to yourself as much as to the congregation? And so this is ultimately what Solomon is showcasing here is the conduct of those who are humble. They are teachable, they are humble when they act, and they are also humble when they speak. So let's give thought first to teachability and what Solomon has to say about this characteristic of the wise person. As Solomon unpacks what it means to be humble, he contrasts it Uh, the arrogance of the fool 
with the humility of the wise Christian. We read in verse 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. You see, an arrogant fool makes up his mind on a matter before he hears any evidence, before he listens to any testimony, before he even talks to anybody. He does not need to listen to both sides in a dispute. He just makes up his mind. And so what lies at the heart of a fool is unteachableness. In other words, the fool does not want any more information because his own mind is the only thing that he listens to. He only takes counsel from himself. This type of attitude can appear in numerous and different circumstances in life. It can appear, for example, in the courtroom. Do we judge the person based upon how they look, speak, or dress, or where they're from? I can remember serving on jury duty recently, and of course, as you're sitting there in the jury pool, the lawyers (coughs) for both sides will ask you those types of questions. Can you make a fair judgment? Even though this person is from such and such a place, is this going to keep you from making a fair assessment of the situation? Are you willing to listen to both sides? In ordinary life, do we judge a book by its cover? You know, we've all heard the saying, you can only make one first impression, and that is very true. But at the same time, are you willing to look past first impressions if somebody gives a poor first impression? Are you willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, maybe it was just a bad day for them, I'm going to give them another chance, maybe a second and even a third chance? How many of us allow that first impression to be the defining moment and ultimate assessment of a person and therefore we give an answer before we hear? In reading a book, do we literally judge a book by its cover? How often do we do that? I mean, from one case, you know, from one time or another, I read a lot of books and sometimes, sadly, truly, good or bad, I will judge a book by its cover. I mean, just because there's all kinds of books, so many, so many books, so little money, so little time. But sometimes we need to look past the cover. You know, or do we dismiss a book because somebody that we do not particularly care for has written it? Or do we refuse to read a book because we think, I know what that's going to say? Well, Solomon taps into the wise person's character, and in this case, he's saying and he's showcasing here that the wise person is filled with humility. The wise person is teachable. He's teachable. Are we willing to set aside our prejudices and hear out the facts in a case? Are we willing to overlook first impressions to get to know somebody by spending time with them? Are we willing to pick up that book that we think we know what it's going to say, but we'll give it a chance anyway? Think of Job's friends and how quickly they assessed the situation when we know from the full story that they did not have all the facts. There's a sense in which a lot of what they said about God was true, but there's also a lot that they said that was false. 
In the opening dialogues, this is one of the things that I've been sharing uh, with my family as we've been reading Job during our family devotions, and I'll walk through it and I'll say, listen to what Bildad said or one of his other friends. He's making assumptions that he knows supposedly that Job has sinned when we know the rest of the story. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. So ultimately what this calls for is if we are going to be teachable, it's going to call for the mind of Christ, a mindset that can only come to us by God's grace in the gospel and through the work of the Spirit. Think about God. You see God showcasing wisdom. God goes to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he did not just pronounce judgment Even though he knew what had happened, he asked questions. He interrogated. He gathered information. Not that he needed it, but I think it was to show both Adam and Eve that God himself is wise. The humble and the teachable Christian is ultimately, therefore, one who diligently pursues knowledge. Verse 15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Unlike the fool who makes up his mind without listening to any information, without hearing both sides of the case, without doing any study, the wise person is quick to listen. I've said this before and earlier in the series, Uh, We have one mouth, two ears. That should give us an idea as to the percentages that we should speak versus listening. Listen twice as much as we speak. James says as much in James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Even if the wise person has a good idea as to what's happened or what someone might say, He's willing to set aside his preconceptions. He's willing to be open to the possibility that he might be wrong. He's even willing to change his mind. We have to remember, though, that when the author here, when Solomon says the intelligent heart acquires knowledge, that it's not just simply about knowing. It's not just simply about gathering data. Because as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, there's a knowledge that puffs up. In other words, knowledge simply for the sake of knowledge can instill arrogance in us because we can say, well, I know more than you. But this is not the nature of a teachable humility of the wise Christian because ultimately the wise person who is seeking this knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge, is because the wise person is seeking instruction. He's seeking knowledge for the sake of wisdom. The fool is always hearing, but never listening. He's always talking, but never imparting wisdom. He's always studying, but never learning. Listen to how Paul describes the, the fool who pursues knowledge, he says in 1 Corinthians thirteen two, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. 
And so this is what Paul says here, is that yes, we pursue knowledge. The wise Christian pursues knowledge, but it's tempered by love because it's ultimately about the pursuit of wisdom, conformity to the image of Christ, not simply about gaining knowledge so that we can impress others. A knowledge unshaped by the cross of Christ and the grace of the gospel is useless. It may give us great wealth. It may give us an impressive reputation among men and success, but it will never bring us closer to Christ and never conform us to his image. So this humility and teachability, and we could even say a thirst for knowledge, is something that should lead us to wisdom. It's something that equips us to glorify God in this life. Solomon says here, Uh, In verse 14, uh, he says, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? See, the wise person is seeking knowledge, is seeking the wisdom of God, uh, so that he can endure sickness. What does that mean? Well, when we walk the path of life, we're going to unquestionably face trials. It was J.R.R. Tolkien who once observed human stories are practically always about one thing. Really? Aren't they? Death. The inevitability of death. All people, unbeliever, believer, sage, or fool, face death. And apart from the wisdom and the mind of Christ, death has the ability to crush the spirit. This is why I believe so many people over the centuries, uh, especially in the contemporary period, have embraced nihilism, the idea that there is no point to living life because it's utterly meaningless. The famous French philosopher and existentialist Albert Camus once posed the question, there is only one really serious philosophical question, and that is suicide. For many, the simple fact of human existence in the apparent face of the randomness of the world, the chaos and the seemingly meaningless existence might put Hamlet's question on the minds of many. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to sleep, No more and by a sleep uh, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die to sleep. What's better? Should we seek existence or should we take arms against the sea of trouble? I think these types of expressions are rooted simply in an earthly limited knowledge. For somebody like Camus to say that the only serious question is whether or not we should kill ourselves is to exemplify verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That is the opinion of somebody with a very limited scope and understanding. Someone who seeks knowledge, but who has not given his ears over to the wisdom of Christ. The fool makes a decision about life before he's heard all the evidence, before he's placed the gospel into the scale. 
The wise person can look at life and respond differently. Thus, you see Solomon contrasting here. A man's spirit will endure, uh, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear? The wise person, the one with the mind of Christ, can endure sickness. But the person who has such a limited scope, who is not wise, who makes up his mind before he's heard all the evidence, a crushed spirit, who can endure it? Who can bear it? The wise person knows that there is more to life than the seemingly chaotic unfolding events uh, and that these events are actually laden with meaning, with purpose and design. Talk about uh, providence. I have William Cooper's God Moves in Mysterious Ways here in my, in my sermon notes. We sang that hymn. Providence, yeah, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The wise person seeks knowledge, learns the wisdom of God, receives the mind of Christ by the grace of the gospel through faith, and he's able to look out into the world and recognize there's more out there then it first meets the eye. He doesn't prejudge according to his own limited conceptions as to what God is doing. The wise person seeks the mind of Christ and he knows that sickness and trial are not the random forces of chaos moving through his life, but rather the nail-scarred hands of Jesus are molding and shaping him to the perfect holy image of Christ. The wise have patience and hope even in the face of adversity. Why? Because they're humble and because they're teachable. Wise person is teachable. He recognizes, Lord, I don't know what your plan is, but I know that you are wise and I will submit to your providence even if I don't understand everything. The arrogant person, the fool, instead gives an answer before he hears and he says, not interested, I know what this is all about. There is no plan here. There is no purpose here. Suicide is the only real option. So there's humility in the teachability in the hearts of the wise. Secondly, there's humility in action. There is humility in action. Solomon moves forward by showing what wisdom looks like in life, how the humble person acts in the world. Verse 16 and 17, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. You see, the foolish person tries to buy an audience. He tries to purchase an outcome with his wealth. He tries to bribe his way for his success. Thus, he says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. You want to get an audience with powerful people? You can buy your way in. And oftentimes the wealthy do, whether it's with politicians, whether it's with celebrities, or whether it's with governments, whatever the case may be. Well, rather than earning his success or his case based upon the merits and the evidence, he tries to purchase the outcome. 
But by way of contrast, in line with verse 13, the wise person waits until he has heard both sides of the case. Again, verse 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is to his folly and shame. Verse 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The wise person is willing to wait and listen. You know, so often it's been my own experience as I've gone to the General Assembly. You often have uh, judicial cases that come before the assembly. And uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, unlike the PCA, it's the entire assembly hears the case. And the entire assembly votes on it. It's not given to uh, the, uh, the Standing Judicial Commission as in the PCA. So you have to sit there and you have to weigh the evidence. And there have been many times when I look at the case and I think, well, based upon what I've read and all the trial documentation, this seems like this person is, is right and this person is wrong. But at the end of the day, I say, well, I have to wait. I have to wait till the testimony. It could be that the testimony or a different, a new piece of evidence will come out in the course of the trial that will change my opinion. The wise person seeks truth. And this is important. He seeks the truth even if the truth works against him. In other words, the wise person is humble and will submit to the truth because it's ultimately the truth of God rather than trying to purchase an outcome or bend the will of the court or the jury or the people involved to himself by means of his wealth. He seeks the truth, the wise person seeks the truth because it means conformity with reality and aligning things with the way they truly are. Theologically, it means confirmation to God's truth in Christ. Now, Solomon gives some concrete feet to this particular point when he says in the following verses in 18 and 19, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and a quarreling and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. You know, in other words, he's continuing here in this vein of the challenging dispute in the courtroom. The wealthy try to buy their outcome. By their verdict, the wise listen, but then Solomon notes that there are sometimes in certain cases that seem insolvable. It's difficult even for the wise to be able to discern who's right and who's wrong. As in Solomon's case, where he had the two prostitutes before him, where you had two competing claims, and of course, in the absence of the scientific uh, you know, tests such as DNA and, and genetics tests, you have to decide who do you take, whose word do you take, who's telling the truth when you have two women claiming the same child. The wise person, he says, the lot puts an end to quarrels. Now, I've explained this before. The lot, the lot is the urim and the thumim, these are... I don't mean this in any way to be disrespectful, but these are the holy dice, if you will, that the high priest kept tucked inside his breastpiece. And when they sought the revelation of God, God's will in a particular situation to know what God would have them to do, they would pull out the Urim and the Thummim and they would roll them. If it came up Urim, it was one answer. If it came up Thummim, it was another answer. 
This is not a flipping of the coin. Well, I can't tell between the two of you who's right or who's wrong, so let's just flip a coin. Heads you win, tails you lose. We'll just give it up to chance. No, casting the lots was a form of divine revelation. And so what Solomon is saying here is he's saying that the wise person seeks the revelation of God, seeks wisdom when there isn't a clear path. And so because we no longer rely on casting lots, because God has ceased to employ them as a means of revelation, it does not mean, therefore, that we seek that we cease to seek God's wisdom in challenging circumstances, where we engage in serious prayer, in fasting if necessary, and seeking God's wisdom in his word to know which decision do I make, which person is in the right. The wise do not resort to force to bring about a desired outcome but instead they resort to wisdom, to truth, to God's word. But as verse 19 shows us, the one who has made up his mind where the truth lies before God has spoken, before the facts are weighed, can become entrenched in his prejudice and become like an impregnable fortress of arrogance. There's no way sometimes to convince someone of his error. The wise person gives way to God's revelation. Even, and even if he still thinks he's right, he prays for humility to have God change his mind to convict him. So there's a sense in which humility in action is related essentially to being teachable. You know, when faced with challenging circumstances, the wise person does not say, I'll figure it out myself. In Solomon's context, he resorted to the casting of lots. In our context, we resort to divine revelation. We resort to prayer. We resort to the wisdom of Christ, something that only comes to us by the gospel and through the grace of the gospel. And then if the court case goes against us, if the, the, the church trial goes against us, we don't set up a wall of anger We don't become entrenched in our loss, but rather the humble person says, oh Lord, help me to accept this verdict, even if I disagree with it. Help me and be, help me to be humble. And sometimes it very well may be that indeed the judgment is false and incorrect against us. But in such cases, We might be tempted to think that God has forgotten us or that wisdom has not prevailed, but that's where we have to recognize that even in those cases, wisdom prevails. How so? Because God uses the unjust verdict to conform us to the image of Christ so that as Christ received his unjust verdict and nevertheless submitted to it in the providence of God, so we too are Christ-like when we submit to the unjust verdict And we embrace the cross of Christ for the sake of obedience, for the sake of learning humility, for the sake of glorifying God in our weakness. So even when things go wrong, God still uses it for his glory and for our conformity to Christ. Third and finally, humble words. When 
The wise find themselves in the midst of a dispute. They do not seek to source the seeds of discord, division, or distrust. In verse 20, we read that from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied with the yield of his lips. The wise person knows that he could sin, that he could express his dissatisfaction with the outcome of a bad verdict, and he could say how corrupt everything is and how much he's been wronged. But if God has revealed that he's in the wrong, then he knows that his words will not only affect others, but himself. You know, one of the things that I do in the, in the morning is I go on a run, and I do so in the early morning hours before the sun comes up. And there have been two occasions, not here, but in the, in my, in the past when I lived in California, where I was attacked by dogs, uh, one, two different dogs on two different occasions. And the first instance, I didn't have uh, pepper spray. Uh, I had left it at home. I didn't have my knife. I left it at home. And so I had a dance with this dog in the middle of the street for 16 minutes and 33 seconds. I know it was that long because that's what the 911 call said when I was calling the police to come out. I was like, finally, you're here, 16 minutes and 33 seconds. The second time, I had pepper spray. And as the dog came up, I thought, I don't know if he wants to play or if he wants to attack me. I'm not going to stop to ask him. I'm just going to spray. And I sprayed. And that kept the dog away. But one of the things that I'm always concerned about in using pepper spray is that as you use it, you have to make sure that the wind's not blowing at you. (laughs) Because if the wind's blowing at you, you're going to get the spray back at you. Now, usually these things spray pretty concentrated fashion, but nevertheless, I try to be careful with that. The person who sprays poisonous words unwise words, sinful words out, doesn't realize that they will blow back upon him. They will be just as destructive to the people that receive them as unto his own heart. And the foolish person doesn't realize that he sprays out his poisonous words. He thinks they're only affecting the others around him, but he doesn't realize that it's an acid that eats away at his own soul. The wise person knows that even his own words can come back to harm him and can be detrimental to the state of his soul. And so this is why he says here in verse 20, the fruit of a man's mouth, uh, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied with the yield of his lips. You know, what was it that that Job could have said as he was in the throes of his suffering. He could have said sinful things. He could have said words of doubt and distrust. But I think he knew this truth. And that not only was he speaking words so that others could hear, but I believe ultimately that Job was preaching to his own soul when he says in Job 121, naked I came from my mother's room and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As he sat upon that ash heap and he scraped his wounds 
and he scraped his boils with broken pieces of pottery, he was still preaching words of life to his own soul. This is the same spirit, I believe, that animated the Apostle Paul when he says in Philippians 4, 12, and 13, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul undoubtedly knew many difficult circumstances. And in the midst of his trials, he too would preach words of life, not only to those around him, but also to his own heart. And so this is why Solomon writes in verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Not only will we speak words of life if we are wise to those around us, but we will also speak words of life, indeed even the gospel of Christ, to ourselves. Beloved, I I hope as we have meditated upon this and hopefully continue to do so that our prayer would be is that God would make us humble, that he would give unto us the mind of Christ by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, that he would make us teachable, that we would be slow to judge God's providence and quick to see the truth of his word in order that we can make sense of our lives. We may not have all of the answers, but we can at least know that God has us pointed in the right direction. In in the midst of all of these challenges that we've had over these last nearly two years with this pandemic and the political unrest, the personal trials of illness, the one truth that I regularly preach to myself, and I would hope that you preach to yourselves, is I say this, you know there have been challenges, but I know this much, that God has us exactly where he wants us. And speaking that truth, that word of life to my own heart, helps me to remember that God has not lost control, that he loves us in Christ. We should pray that we would relentlessly pursue, study, and live out the truth of the gospel in every circumstance in which we find ourselves. At the same time, we must always remember this, that we can only receive the mind of Christ by the grace of God in Christ through the outpouring of the Spirit. In other words, we should cry out to him saying, give us the mind of Christ so that we would be teachable, so that we would be humble in how we act, and so that our hearts would be filled with the words of life to speak unto others, but especially in this case, to speak unto ourselves. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful uh, that you have given us the mind of Christ through the working of your Spirit We pray, O Lord, that you would give us a hunger and thirst for the wisdom that comes to us only in Christ. Make us slow to speak. Give us an openness of mind, O Lord, that we would not judge your providence ignorantly, that we would not prejudicially judge those around us, that we would be willing to listen to the truth of the gospel, that we would be willing to listen to those around us, that we would speak half as much as we listen, and that, O Lord, you would fill our hearts with the words of life. So often we are so eager to speak, but we speak the wrong things because, O Lord, we're unwilling to listen, unwilling to listen to you. 
Give us the humility to remain silent in your presence, that you would fill us with the words of life, so that when we speak, it would be a blessing unto others, it would be a blessing unto ourselves, and it would be glorifying unto you. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.